Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 62, The Minority of Henry III. Every week I'm suggesting an audiobook to listen to courtesy of Audible. I can recommend Audible from personal experience. It's so much more affordable than CDs and has a massive range of titles. And you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a free trial with absolutely no commitment. All I ask is that you follow the link from my website www.thehistoryofengland.com so that they know you heard about it from me. This week, very dangerously, I'm going to recommend Livy's History of Rome. Dangerously, because it was very recently recommended on Mike Duncan's History of Rome, so you've probably already decided whether you like it or not. But I was amazed when I heard these were on audiobooks. I remember finding these on my father's bookshelf as a teenager, and this is just the best story in the world. And Livy, he's a guy who likes his story personal, told through the lives of the great men and the great families. It's a treasure trove. If you want to pick one volume, I'd personally go for volume three, which is all about Hannibal. So, today we're going to cover the main political events that take us from the end of William the Marshal's regency in 1219 to a slightly arbitrary date that historians have decided marks the time when Henry ends his minority and takes over direct governance, i.e. January 1227. The themes of these years are a struggle for supremacy between the leading men, and the struggle between the power of the centre and the regions. And while all this is going on, the territories outside England's borders are under threat, though we're going to deal with that in a different episode. Quite apart from all the fun of trying to climb the greasy pole, our three leading men, Pandolf the Papal Legate, Peter de Roche, the Bishop of Winchester, and Hubert de Burr, the Justicier, had inherited massive problems from William the Marshal's regency. Royal revenue was hopelessly tiny, so much so that Philip Augustus was able to grimly remark that the kings of the English were too poor to recover their lands. 
the situation was now completely reversed. Plantagenet revenue was far less than that of Capetian France. England stood on the brink of the kind of anarchy they'd had to deal with in Stephen's day. In the settlement at the end of the Civil War, it had been agreed that the rebels would have their land back. The trouble was that this very land had often been promised to the loyal supporters of the king, the very people who had helped dig him out of the proverbial hole. So, there's a constant jockeying for position and a flood of court cases between lords of the land, from the greatest to the littlest. And meanwhile, the triumvirate itself had no effective levers of control. OK, royal justice was back up and running, but if you were powerful enough, you could just refuse to accept the judgment and the poor old government would simply have to put up with it. The three men in control were very different beasts. We'll put Pandolf to one side slightly because he's going to resign relatively early, but just remember that England is a papal fief now and Pope Honorius is involved. And in fact, it's his letters of March and April 1219 that lay out the government programme. So here were the priorities. Number one, get a grip on Ireland, where the local justicia is playing up. Two, get a grip on Wales and keep Llewellyn under control. And three, preserve the king's rights until his majority. Number three is the big one and where we need to add some subclauses. So, 3.1, get back royal domain lands that have been taken by other lords, because if we don't, the king hasn't got two beans to rub together. And anyway, they belong to him. 3.2. Take control of the levers of government, the king's agents, i.e. the sheriffs. At the moment, an awful lot of them are simply holding on to royal revenue and not giving it into the exchequer. And the king, he needs some beans. 3.3. Rebuild the royal finances and therefore royal power so that people do what our justices say rather than just picking the judgment that sounds nice to them. And have we mentioned that problem about the king and his beans? So, that's the programme. Now back to the other two of the triumvirate. Hubert was a man of relatively humble origins. He was a Norfolk man, i.e. from the east of England, from a place called Burr next Aylsham, not far from Norwich, for those of you who wanted to go and look it up. He'd already played a significant part in the affairs of the realm and proved his loyalty to John in his defence of Chinon, and had been made justicia by John in 1215, incidentally replacing Peter de Roche, which was unlikely to have helped the relationship along. Hubert was probably in his mid-forties in 1219, and there are a few things to note. He's not a rich bloke. Now, if you become Justice Theor of England in the Middle Ages, you could normally be pretty confident about being able to feather your own nest, and end up with a nice collection of land for you and for your family. But Hubert's timing was most unfortunate, and even, in the words of Lady Bracknell, rather careless. Everyone had agreed that the rules of the minority were that the main responsibility was to protect the rights and the lands of the king until he came of age. So, this meant that no grants of land could be made in perpetuity until he came into his majority, which was expected to be about 1228. This meant that Hubert and his family would not be secure unless he made it to the king's majority still at the top of the greasy pole. And this is a powerful motivator for Hubert. And finally... He's quite clearly a supporter of Magna Carta, and from this support he's managed to distance himself from the worst aspects of John's kingship, i.e. pretty much all the aspects of John's kingship. Which is more than you can say for Peter de Roche. Now Peter is a rich man. He's the bishop of the richest bishopric in all England. He has a hill of beans. 
He might be the Bishop of Winchester, but don't imagine for one moment that this got in the way of Peter's most loved religious figure, Peter de Roche. Here is an arrogant, ambitious man described by the monks of Winchester as being, and I quote, hard as rocks. You see what they're doing there? Little pun? You know, Roche, French word for rocks, just in case you didn't pick it up. These monks really knew how to laugh. There's also an anonymous little satire that survives, which goes like this. The warrior of Winchester up at the exchequer, sharp at accounting, slap at scripture. Sweet. Gets the idea across, I think. Peter was a big fan of royal power in the traditional sense. He was to display a casual disregard for Magna Carta, especially the clause about not arresting people without the lawful judgment of their peers. I mean, good lord, what's the point of being a bishop and regent unless you can chuck people into jail when you feel like it? The long and short is that Peter did not manage to distance himself from John's rule. The other thing was that he was not a native-born Englishman in a time when this was just beginning to matter. He was from Terrain and took no trouble to hide his preference for home. He was therefore less acceptable to the barons than was Hubert. He's in the triumvirate because he's a leading figure and because he has a job of being the king's guardian. Now potentially this last thing is a biggie because everyone becomes more and more conscious that at some bloke increasingly soon Henry will take over and he'd better be in his good books when he does. And in fact, although it's not until 1227 that he formally takes over, Henry begins to be involved in decision-making from 1221, although he is just a lad. So Peter de Roche had the perfect opportunity to become the king's best friend, BF, BFE, or all those other acronyms that my children use. For a while, the triumvirs are basically firefighting, trying to hold back the forces of anarchy. If I go through all the examples, you're going to go to sleep. So let me just give you just one from August 1219. News arrived that the Earl of Salisbury was trying to force his way into Lincoln Castle and expel the Castellan, Nicola de la Haye. Hubert, Peter and Falk de Broete legged it up to Lincoln. Falk took a force into the castle and Salisbury backed off. If champagne had existed, champagne corks would have been popping up all over the tents of the king, but really the whole thing's a disgrace. Salisbury, it so happens, is the sheriff of Lincolnshire, and here he is trying to nab a nice castle for his own in his very own sheriffdom. Also, he happens to be refusing to pay the revenues he collects as sheriff into the exchequer. And yet, Salisbury went completely unpunished. The absurdity of the whole thing is rammed home when an official order is sent to Salisbury's sheriff to give 250 marks to Falks to sustain Lincoln Castle. Sustain it, that is, against Salisbury himself, in his other capacity as robber baron. The recovery of royal power is a story of little by little, of baby steps, of two steps forward and one step back, of eating the elephant piece by piece, just picky cliché. Many of the barons holding royal castles would accept, in principle, that they should be giving them up to the king, but in practice, self-interest got in the way. Equally, they had perfectly good arguments for holding on to the king's lands and rights. One was that they could legitimately claim that Henry's not a proper king yet, not until he's gained his majority. And secondly, they could claim that they were protecting his rights, taking great care of them right where they were. No need to give them up to some dodgy, ambitious justicier. The first step for the triumvirate, then, was to be absolutely clear about Henry's legitimacy. So, in May 1220, the triumvirate arranged for a second coronation. The first one had been done in the wrong church with the wrong churchman. This time it's got all the right formulae. 
the Archbishop of Canterbury, plus Westminster Abbey. Henry took the coronation oath in front of his barons and was anointed by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The next day, though, was the real point of the exercise. All the barons were gathered together and made to swear an oath right back, specifically that they would resign the royal castles and wards and deliver all royal revenue to the exchequer as required and to wage war against any rebel who didn't comply. No one could now claim that Henry wasn't legit, nor could they claim that, oops, the email telling me to hand over the dough just never arrived. And against this background, the triumvirs score a few successes. Villains number one and two are Philip Oldcoats and the Count of Omal. Oldcoat is a king in the far north of England in Northumberland, a sheriff with absolutely no intention of sending his money back south, since in his view he needed it to carry out royal business anyway, and stubbornly holding on to a castle at a place called Mitford. In June 1220, the royal court made its way up north to York, and under enormous pressure, Oldcoats finally gave in and gave the castle back, on condition that he continued to hold Northumberland as sheriff. Rather cleverly, they then managed to persuade Oldcoats to take the job of Seneschal of Poitou, a poison chalice if ever there was a poison chalice. And on his way to take up the job, he died near Paris. And so Northumberland came back to the crown as well. Omal was a slightly tougher nut to crack. Omal held two castles illegally, a place called Rockingham in the Midlands of England, just by the Northamptonshire-Rutland border, and a place called Bitham, a bit further north near Grantham. On the way back south from York, the royal court sauntered casually past Rockingham, metaphorical hands in metaphorical pockets, metaphorical lips pursed with metaphorically casual whistling. Omal's garrison breathed a heavy sigh of relief as they passed. Then, to their horror, the next morning the triumvirs had doubled back and were at their gate. Omal had made no preparations for a siege, confident either in his power or the government's weakness. And before you could say Jack Robinson, Rockingham was back in the royal hands and the lands it commanded redistributed to its rightful owners. Peter de Roche was remarkably forgiving, going as far as issuing a letter saying that Amal had given the castle up of his own accord and writing off the debts that he owed to the crown. Sadly, this doesn't do the trick. Amal is unrepentant and held on tight to Bitham, his other castle. There was some sympathy for him. After all, it's men like him who had held the country for the king against the rebels. Amal then attended the king's Christmas court of 1220, which was apparently a grand, glittering occasion, with the king surrounded by his barons, earls and prelates. But, rather than focusing on normal Christmas activities like keeping Granny out of the sherry trifle, Omal chose this moment to go ballistic. We don't quite know why. We do know that the government had started a legal proceeding against him to get him to return a royal manor at a place called Driffield. It's just possible that Amal decided that, hell, they're out to get me, so I'll get my retaliation in first. So, he slipped away from court in the middle of the night without asking the king's permission, which is required. He headed for Bitham, resupplied it against the siege, did a bit of ravaging in the local villages, and then tried and failed to take local important castles at Sleaford, Kimbolton and Newark. Omar would have been conscious of the weakness of the king's household, but presumably also realised that he had no hope of success unless other people joined him. His great white hope was the Earl of Chester, one of the most powerful men in the kingdom, and a man who wavered between a desire to exercise his independence and his duty to support the king. But nobody came to his party, and by the end of January a royal army, including Falk, was approaching Bitham. 
Omar had by then fled north into Yorkshire, but the local lords there also remained loyal and closed in on him. The castle at Bitham surrendered after a few days, and Omar was surely now in for the chopping board. As it happens, chopping there was none. The earls of Chester, Salisbury, Surrey, Pembroke and many other lords all gave surety for his future behaviour and therefore saw to it that Omar suffered no further punishment. But the triumvirate was slowly turning the corner. The barons had remained loyal. A leading challenger to the king's authority had been brought to heel. There was a long way to go, but this was a significant success. By now it was also becoming clear that some of the triumvirate were more equal than others. There's a tantalising glimpse in a document where Peter and Hubert have both attested a document. Peter's name had originally been first, then it was scrubbed out and Hubert's name inserted first instead. Hubert was acquiring some level of mastery. There were two events that provided the catalyst. The first was the resignation of Pandolf in July 1221. With the return of Stephen Langton, the permanent presence of a papal legate undermined the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury so it was time for him to go. The second was Henry's 14th birthday on October the 1st. In Roman law, this day marked the progress from childhood to adolescence, and the moment when the tutor's authority over his pupil came to an end. This meant that Peter's guardianship of the king was over. To be frank, Peter had anyway failed to use his greatest leverage to his full advantage. There's absolutely no evidence that he and Henry had any great sense of fellowship, and you have to think that creating a strong sense of fellowship really wasn't Peter's strong suit. Though telling his people what to do might well have been, which I'm told can be irritating for the teenager. But the loss of his privileged access to the king meant that Peter's future power looked much more uncertain. As Hubert and Henry became closer and closer, and Henry's majority approached, Peter would become more and more anxious to get rid of his rival. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As the king's 14th birthday approached, the jockeying for position started. Hubert's most important supporter was the Earl of Pembroke one of the most powerful of all the magnates, with land in the Welsh marches, Ireland and England. Pembroke, then, is the name we're now using for the Marshall family. William and his wife had been a pretty productive couple, and when he died, I'd guess that William felt pretty comfortable that with five healthy sons, not to mention the daughters, the line was secure. As it happens, between now and 1245, we will go through all of those sons, and none of them will have children. Anyway, up until 1231, the head of the clan is William the Marshal II. Hubert started by attacking Peter's associates and picked on one Peter de Morlay. De Morlay was a consistent offender against the rights of the Crown, a sheriff who failed to return his revenues to the Exchequer and use his position to seize land. He was also the castellan of the royal castle at Corfe, which meant that one of his jobs was to look after Eleanor of Brittany. Hopefully you remember all about Eleanor. She's the sister of Arthur, the guy who got killed by John, and has probably a better claim to the throne, in fact, than Henry has, and so she was kept in captivity for most of her life. In June 1221, then, the Great Council met at Oxford. Hubert picked his time carefully, choosing a time when de Roche was away on pilgrimage. 
De Morlay duly answered the King's summons and came to Oxford all unsuspecting, and during proceedings was invited to the King's chamber as if for a secret meeting. He probably felt pretty important as he marched along to the meeting, looking forward to being involved in some special high-level discussion. Instead, he was accused of plotting with the King of France to turn Eleanor over to him and betray Henry. Hubert and his accomplices treated him pretty roughly, tearing his clothes, throwing him into prison. The affair neatly ticked two boxes for Hubert, getting royal castles back into royal control and cutting Peter off at the knees by attacking his associates. From 1221 to 1223, Peter de Roche is not officially expunged from the government. He still attests some charters and letters, but it's clear now that this is the government of the Justicier Hubert, ably supported by Stephen Langton. And Hubert proves his value as the resumption of royal power gathers pace. Hubert's clearly interested in being top dog in the shiniest kennel, but he never takes his eye off the job. He always stays in touch with his barons. Business is agreed and supported by constant reference to the Magnum Concilium. A good example is the resumption of the royal domain. In June 1222, at a gathering of the Great Council, the sheriffs were given a specific list of royal domain land to bring back into royal control. Barons as powerful as the Earl of Pembroke, Falk de Broite, Walter de Lacey found themselves forced off royal domains they'd been enjoying for years. That little list is an illustration of the complexity of the whole affair. On the one hand, Hubert needs the great men to support him. On the other hand, he's reducing their power and revenue by taking back royal land that they've been holding. It demonstrates Hubert's diplomatic skills that he manages to keep the support of men like Pembroke, and for most of the time, Falk. However, many of these men were sensible enough to see that without a strong central royal justice resolving the myriad of land disputes between the barons, the whole thing will collapse into anarchy and they won't get any of their land anyway. Falk in particular illustrates the complexity of the motivations of each side. By this stage, Falk is sheriff in six counties and is the Earl of Devon by marriage. In that sense, he is therefore a shining example of the kind of men that Hubert needs to get rid of. Folks, of course, doesn't see it that way. As far as he is concerned, he's a loyal supporter of the king. He supported John to the end and was an essential part of the fight against Louis. From his point of view, the reason he fails to give any money to the exchequer or give his land back to the king or hand over the land that belongs to rebels that he still has is that he needs the money and land to rule his county on behalf of the king. And until the king is in his majority, it's his duty not to hand those lands across to anyone. Particularly frustrating to Falk is the growing feeling against the non-natives, the French, men like Peter, Falk, Angelard de Sigonier, de Morlay, de Lille and many others are considered as outsiders. The deeper we go into Henry's reign, the clearer is the development of a xenophobic sense of English nationality. To Falk, this is a denial of all the support he's given the king. He's known to have raged, It's you native-born English who are the traitors. That's a good example of 1222. In August, Hubert in Wales is brought unusual news of riots in London. The leader, Constantine Fitz Athelf, a big man in the world of the city, had started pro-French riots, his supporters shouting, Let God and our Lord Louis help us! Within days, Hubert and Folks were in the city, summoned the mayor and the leading men and demanded an explanation. Constantine is a medieval man who appears to have had his sense of caution and self-preservation surgically removed since he stood forward and boasted of his exploits. What exactly was the guy thinking? 
Now, Schubert had demonstrated his commitment to Magna Carta and the don't imprison a man without the judgment of his peers thing, and so on. But surely that can't be applied to a bloke like Constantine, can it? So Constantine was arrested without a moment's hesitation. The following day, Fox took him up to the river to Tyburn, now firmly established as London's place of execution, and Constantine was hanged without any judgment or the smallest whiff of a peer being in general vicinity. London resented it and didn't forget. Matthew Paris, on the other hand, simply wrote, Constantine was a criminal and deserved to be hung. My point about all of this, interesting though it might be of itself, is that Fawkes, alien though he is, is firmly at Hubert's side, and Hubert needs his muscle. Hubert knew full well that at some point Falk would have to be brought properly to heel and removed from his offices. But quite when and how, well, those are the big issues. The catalyst is again the approaching majority of the king. In April 1223, a series of letters from the Pope indicated that Henry should have greater control over the royal seal, i.e. to be the ultimate decision-maker. Hubert had decided that now was the time to strike, and had his alliance with Pembroke all signed up and ready to go. For Pembroke's part, of course, he was mainly interested in the greater good, but it may just be worth mentioning that Falk held a series of manners that Pembroke claimed as his own. So, as with de Morlay, Hubert decided to pick on one of the de Roche party, in this case a baron called Walter de Lacy. Walter was called to the king's court and then told that he couldn't leave until he'd yielded the king's castles. But meanwhile de Roche had not been idle either. His party now included the Earl of Chester, a massively powerful man, and a group of non-native lords such as the Count of Omal, there's him again, Angelard de Sigonier and Brian de Lille. Falk himself now realised his danger, and he joined Peter's side. If this example of Walter de Lacy was allowed to stand, they could all be the next Walter de Lacy's. The key was the king, so they planned to approach the king and expose Hubert's malice, and bring him down. Ironically, Peter de Roche therefore now found that his personal ambition had led him to alignment with the forces of local power, rather than central authority, which was quite against his natural inclinations. Hubert was in real danger. The king's income was improving, but was still way less than it had been under John. This was reflected in the size of the king's household, and of course Hubert himself wasn't rich. In 1223, the royal household probably included something like a hundred knights and sergeants, a number that folks on his own could manage. But fortunately, Hubert caught wind of the plan, and he and the king fled to Gloucester. From there, they had access to the Earl of Pembroke's resources, and by the 27th of November were confident enough to return to London. When they arrived, the de Roche party were besieging the tower, but at the sight of Hubert they withdrew. England was once again on the brink of civil war. Enter Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, stage left, looking holy. As a result, a meeting was arranged on the we're all reasonable people here, sure we can work this all out together, there's no I in team principle. As it happens, the meeting was anything but reasonable. Here's the analyst referring initially to Peter and his allies. They declared unanimously that they had done and wished to do nothing against the king, but in every way it was necessary for Hubert de Burg called Justicia to be removed from the administration as a dissipator of the king's treasure and an oppressor of the people. 
but the Justicia burst out in insulting words, and, wishing to place the blame for everything on Peter, Bishop of Winchester, he called him traitor to the king and kingdom. The bishop threatened that if it cost him all he had, he would cause the Justicia to be removed from power, and rising up from the middle of the assembly with the Earl of Chester, the Count of Omar Folk, and Brian de Lille, he left, murmuring and complaining. So, that went well then. Somehow Langton managed to get a truce agreed. By the 10th of December 1224, Hubert and Langton had agreed that the king should have control of the royal seal. This isn't full majority, but it is a much greater involvement in the affairs of state, and Langton and Hubert were now clearly working together. Tensions rose again. De Roche sent desperate letters and an envoy to the Pope, asking him to send a legate to take control. Hubert pushed ahead. At the end of 1224, the king arrived at Northampton for the Christmas feast. With him were an overwhelming collection of earls and magnates. And then all were commanded to give up their royal castles and offices. Meanwhile, de Roche and his allies were camped to the northeast in Leicester. Now it was decision time. Civil war or submission. There is an interpretation that it was loyalty that made the Earl of Chester lead his associates into submission. It's just as likely that they could see the odds for themselves. Whatever the reason, submit they did. There was something of a deal. Langton promised that all the sheriffdoms and castles would be given up by everyone, not just de Roche and his faction. The truth was that while Hubert and his supporters nominally offered their castles to Langton, they were not actually required to give them up. De Roche's party hadn't yet given up hope. Their cause now relied on a reply from the Pope. But Hubert wasn't finished either. He had one more target. In February 1225, Folk was ordered to give up the lands of his earldom of Devon. And meanwhile, a charge of a breach of the peace was raised against him personally in the courts. Now, a breach of the peace could lead to a hanging, which would obviously solve the problem for Hubert. And then, just to make sure everyone was clear about what was going on here, in May a royal investigation was ordered of all the land seizures Folk had made. It's not clear at this stage that Folk had decided to fight. In fact, there seems to have been a bit of a rapprochement at one point and the possibility of a deal. After all, Folk had basically been a loyal royal supporter. But in the end, Folk had his hand forced for him. His brother, William de Poyote, chose this moment to seize one of the king's justices and take him captive, proving that brothers can be a problem. The king ordered his release. Folk refused. Game on. Looking back, there really does seem to be only one way this could go. But at the time, it would have looked different. The king was under pressure in Poitou and could have been distracted. Maybe Folk's friends, like de Roche or the Earl of Chester, would join up. Or more likely, Folk hoped that if he could hold out long enough, the Pope's response would arrive. He'd prepared well. He'd spent plenty of the king's money reinforcing the castle at Bedford and was confident it could hold out, especially since his brother commanded it for him. And it's true, Hubert did not find getting into Bedford easy. It took six weeks. When the garrison was finally winkled out, the result was unusually severe. The whole garrison of 80 or more people, including William de Briorte, were hanged. According to Paris, Folk was a broken man when he submitted to Henry, weeping when he heard of his brother's death. He handed all his land to the king. By October he was in exile, choosing exile rather than the judgment of his peers. His wife loyally filed for divorce, claiming that she'd been forced into marriage eight years ago anyway. 
Falk spent the next two years moving from place to place, at one point arguing his case in the papal court, living at Troyes in France for a while, and getting in trouble with the French king for failing to do homage. Until, in 1226, still in exile, he ate a poisoned fish and died. There's no official date when Henry assumed his majority, no big party with a sherry punch and bunting. But in January 1227, a little early at the age of 20, Henry assumed full control of the royal seal, and that's when we generally think of his period of majority starting. Hubert was firmly in control as justicia. So, apart from being a bit of a bunfight, how do we sum up Henry's minority in terms of domestic politics? Hubert's major achievement is that despite an appalling lack of resources, England does not fall into the chaos and regionalism that could so easily have occurred. Henry assumes his majority with royal power and even finances restored, though clearly still limited financially. Throughout, Hubert had stuck securely to the principle that the regency could only operate by consent. Throughout the period, the Magnum Concilium is a constant decision-making and approving body, and the principle of consent with the magnates is therefore now deeply embedded in English politics. Herbert is a genius at managing different groups and parties, and it's a skill that will henceforth be essential. We also see in the period a new strand in politics appearing, England's identity as being separate from France, tipping well over into a rather xenophobic distrust of aliens. Henry would have done well to have taken note of all these developments, because all were to come back and sink their teeth firmly into the royal buttocks later in the reign. So, that's it for now, and thanks for your comments and ratings on iTunes, my website, email and Facebook and so on. I can tell you that I'm perilously close to 100 ratings on the US iTunes, which is massively exciting. The answer to last week's question, by the way, is Henry III, Edward III, George III, Victoria... Elizabeth II, and for a kicker, you can get James VI of Scotland and I of England, who was a king in Britain, but not a king in England, for over 50 years. Well done to those of you who got it right, and to Chad, who almost did, but top prize to Ben, who answered without looking at his poster of kings and queens. I know he told the truth, because he missed one. Next time, we'll look at how England coped with its external relationships during the period, and get on to the personal rule of Henry. I say next time because I'm having a week off. But never fear, the History of England will have a guest presenter next week. Zach got in touch and offered to do an episode. He's thinking about starting a new series called When Diplomacy Fails, which sounds like a brilliant idea to me. So next week, you'll have a really good episode on the background and events of Bannockburn. As a patriotic Englishman, this is a particularly painful event to have to cope with, though Zach does it really well, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm sure he'd also love your feedback and tips, so do post a comment on the website or send him an email and I'll post his email address on the website as well. But as far as I'm concerned, I'll be back on the 2nd of June. So thanks very much for listening. Good luck and have a great fortnight.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.